Hey guys, this is Vinny. Yeah, and we just wanted to come in before we get into the regular episode that we already have planned. We wanted to let you know about some special things that we're doing in light of what's happening with the Ukraine-Russia situation. So Rob, what's going on? We recorded the episode that you're about to listen to two weeks ago before the war broke out. So we want to let you know that we are aware of what's happening and we want to let you encourage you to be in prayer. We already recorded a podcast episode kind of giving our take. And we want to encourage you to look, look at that. And then we're going to be doing an episode in the next week with some people that are in Russia itself. We're going to get them on and say, hey, how's it going? What's happening on the ground there for the moms and dads and the sons and daughters and members of the church and the Christian community? And so, Vinny, you want to just go ahead and open us in prayer tonight? And we'd want to say that the point of the episodes that we do, if, if you've been listening, you know this by now, we're not worried about the geopolitical. We're not figuring out the politics of it. it. It really is looking at the ethical ramification, what's happening with the church. That's our bet. And so even our conversation that we're going to have with our Russian friends, that's what it's going to be about. So let's pray for them right now. So Lord, as the God who is in control of all things, that you would change hearts and minds right now for people who are attacking others, that you would end wars that you would sustain the people who are just in this terrible conflict. You would be with the Ukrainians as they might be experiencing terrible things, whether they're still in their land fighting, whether they're fleeing their land where you have mothers and children worried about their fathers and husbands, just give them a piece that they would not understand, but it would be known through the Christians that are engaging the people who are fleeing. And then we want to pray for Russians as well for those Russian soldiers who might not feel as though what they're doing is right. Give them a uh, courage to act accordingly for, you know, be with all those thousands of Russian protesters demonstrating that this is not right. This is not the way the world we want to live in. And ultimately we would say, change the heart of leaders like Putin. Uh, change their heart and make them people who want to not engage in conflict, not engage in injustices and, and actually change his heart. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everyone. Welcome in. We are in our Matthew series, as we go through the Bible, we go through the New Testament. I'm never going to get this right. We're, as we go through the New Testament in sometime in a yearish period. And so we are in our Matthew series, as we've started with our Mark series, where we bring in a scholar one time to have a discussion on something significant to the book. Uh, we're going to be doing that today. And so uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Rob, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, we are really excited to have Bruce Fisk or Dr. Bruce Fisk with us today. Bruce has a PhD from Duke University in the New Testament and Christian origins under the work of Richard Hayes. So some of you know who Richard Hayes is, a phenomenal New Testament scholar. Uh, Bruce worked at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, and just couldn't handle the weather there because it's just so horrible. <laughs> it's disgusting there. But yeah. from 1999 <laughs> to 2018, and he finally stepped away. He also was leading a lot of pilgrimages to the Middle East and Holy Land while at Westmont College, and he's still, he's still doing that. Obviously, COVID's kind of interrupted the, the schedule, but I think, Bruce, you got another trip coming up pretty soon here in the next few months. But his programs are part Christian pilgrimage, part historical study of Jesus and the land, and then part encounter with Jews and Palestinians in their modern context. So they're wonderful taking students over there. He's also the author of a book that I just, I really enjoyed. And I keep telling Bruce, you got to write more books, but he hasn't taken me up on that. But he wrote a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Jesus, reading the gospels on the ground. And for those of you that might be starting seminary or you're, you're in Bible college or you're, 
more academically minded. I think I can say that. Okay, right, Bruce? It's, it's kind of geared to the more academically minded. And you want to get the background of historical Jesus and biblical studies for the last hundred or so years. Where's it been? This is a phenomenal tool because it's kind of a narrative. It, this guy's hitchhiking through Israel, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Palestinian territories. And on his way, he meets people and has conversations and you learn about the historical Jesus. So I think it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So Bruce lives with his wife, Alessandra, in the Peruvian Andes, about 10,000 feet above sea level. And he hikes with his two dogs and his record height so far is 17,000 feet. You can do better though, Bruce. I know you can. So last year he became the senior research fellow for the network of evangelicals for the Middle East. So Bruce, welcome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Vinny. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is going to be fun. Yeah, good. Uh, we are too. Let me begin, Bruce. I think you've listened to some of the episodes that we've done in the Gospel of Matthew already, and we really stressed, and maybe we spent too much time because we've got four episodes and we still haven't gotten out of Matthew 7, uh, but we really talked about Jesus and the story that Matthew's telling of Jesus as the life of Israel being relived in Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. And as a result of that, the kingdom of God kind of coming in Jesus and being fulfilled in him and all that. And this raises questions that I, we brought you in to kind of help us answer. But one of the questions is, well, what does this mean for Israel today and the Jewish people? Is Matthew's gospel nationalistic and tribal? Let's kind of start with that. Yeah, Matthew's not a gospel of subtlety, is it? Um, I mean, Mark's maybe more interested in mystery, but Matthew loves to tell the story of Jesus, sort of fused, overlaid, uh, interpreted through the lens of the story of Israel, as you folks have been laying out. And those two stories just kind of illuminate each other as you go along, don't they? Mm -hmm. um, and that that means that Matthew's story is a very Jewish story. It's a very scriptural story. Um, if you weren't raised in the synagogue or if you weren't raised in Sunday school and you don't know Israel's story, a lot of Matthew's story, a lot of Matthew's Christology, his construction or description of Jesus is just going to go over our heads. But yeah, so that does raise the question that you're asking. Does uh, Matthew's Jesus-centered reading of scripture invalidate Israel? Does it invalidate Judaism? Uh, I would argue no. I don't want to rush to that conclusion. I think we need to sit with it a little bit. But I would argue that Matthew's story is not a rejection uh, um, of Israel's sacred text, but it's a, a retrospective hermeneutical transformation, if you will. If that's not too long of a phrase. Yeah, explain, um, explain what yeah, you mean. Flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, yeah flesh that yeah, out. Yeah, so borrowing the language of Richard Hayes, my mentor, um, who wrote a book called Reading Backwards, you know, popularized that image. I think Scott McKnight has picked mm -hmm. up on that as well. But this is the idea of becoming convinced, as Paul was, as Matthew was, of the person of Jesus as Israel's Messiah raised by God, therefore affirmed by God, becoming convinced that that Jesus then is the hope and the fulfillment of Israel. And so now, okay, how do we go back then to the Bible, the scriptures, our, what we call the Old Testament, and reread that in light of this sort of surprising outcome, namely that the crucified 
rabbi from the Galilee is, it turns out, the hope of Israel. And so you turn back to those texts. And I think, I think in a sense, the entire New Testament is engaged in that task of going back to scripture and we catch them sort of in the hermeneutical act of rethinking what their cherished scriptures mean, which focused on, you know, the covenants with Abraham, the promise to the descendants of Abraham, the blessings on the Israelites, the promise not only of exile, but of restoration of those Israelites, all of those promises, all of those expectations then remain. And it's up to these New Testament authors to reread and rediscover what those things might mean, given this new data, this new datum of Jesus as as the Messiah. So something like that is going on. I don't think Matthew or any of the gospel writers would imagine themselves being anti-Jewish. I don't think that's a category that they would have been able to understand. They're, maybe we'll get to this later, but I think they're, we're talking about an, a sibling rivalry within Judaism in the same sense that maybe the folks at Qumran whom we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls were arguing as another Jewish sect that they had the insight, they had the truth, they were the ones who now could read the Bible faithfully. So also Matthew, you could say a sectarian within Judaism, if that's not uh, problematic, is reading scripture, claiming authoritative rights to interpret Israel's tradition. So let me actually, if I could actually back this up a little bit to maybe frame some of the conversation, because even the question like, what do you mean is, you know, Matthew anti-Jewish or, or anything like that? So I grew up in a theological tradition in, in the Lutheran tradition from like, you know, zero to 13, where I never experienced, like, this is something I'm actually truly grateful for, for my, my, my family and my community. I never experienced a, a notion of anti-Semitism. And, and it wasn't even like till high school age and I got in a different theological tradition. I, I don't, it's not in light of the theological tradition, but just culturally, I never experienced like even derogatory terms towards Jewish people. And even the concept of, wow, people hate Jewish people outside of knowing like the Holocaust happened, like this wasn't a thing. And then you learn more theologically, you know, some like Luther, you know, like the anti-Semitism that happens there and all that. I guess one of my questions is like, what's even happening with these questions of anti-Semitism and so you had mentioned how there's infighting amongst maybe the Qumran people and whatnot, but just overall, why is there an idea that there's an anti-Semitism at all? Like, is that, is that something that happened later? Is that a reformation idea or is there, is there a deep arguments in that early on in the church? My take on this is that the new Testament does reflect a very lively, vibrant, and at times polemical combat, rhetorical, for certainly, but also hermeneutical and theological. And the debate is, of course, you know, who gets to speak for God, who gets mm -hmm. to interpret Israel's scripture. And in that combat, which is high stakes and intense, and if you spend time in the Middle East, you can expect it to be, you know, polemical and lively. Uh, in that combat, there are things stated and Matthew offers some great examples that can be heard in several different ways. 
if you hear those texts, if you hear those statements of Jesus or comments by Matthew, as if he were part of a Gentile church detached from Israel, nothing really to do with Judaism, they sound one way. If you hear them, however, as part of a intra-Jewish debate with high stakes in which Matthew is pleading and using as many tactics as he has at his disposal to persuade his fellow Jews that his interpretation or his understanding of scripture and of Jesus is the one to follow, it sounds, again, very different. So mm -hmm. part of the issue that's extremely difficult for us at the beginning of this discussion is whether we can discern sort of the social location of Matthew, of Mark, of John, of Paul, and so on. That's a tough question to really answer with any high level of certitude, but it matters, right? Mm -hmm. I think the location of Matthew in this debate, in this first century context, even locating him after the fall of Jerusalem, after the, after the year 70, makes a big difference in terms of how we then go on to understand what he's saying. But then, of course, if you move forward, uh, Rob, do you want to jump in at this point? I have, yeah, yeah, let me... I, I want to, yeah, I want to just make sure the listeners are, are really grasping the significance of what you're saying and where the conversation is going. One, the word hermeneutical, which mm -hmm. you've used a couple of times, means interpretation. You know, how do we interpret it? And one of the issues was, and again, feel free to interject, Bruce, if you want here, was that Matthew, you start off by saying, hey, Matthew is convinced that Jesus is this Messiah, yet he's from Galilee and he dies on a cross. The point of that is, is that doesn't seem to fit with what they were expecting. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to look different and maybe not even from the Galilee. And as a result of that, Matthew, Paul, and, and the New Testament writers, they then go back. They, they take the story of Jesus as they know it, and then they go back to the Old Testament and reread it. And that's the tradition that I was raised in was, oh, the Old Testament says all these things, and look, it all happened in the life of Jesus. And actually, they didn't go that direction. They started with the life mm -hmm. of Jesus and mm -hmm. went back to the Old Testament because the life of Jesus that they had didn't actually square with what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the first issue. The second the issue then is, you're saying this now brings up a debate with the Jews in the synagogue next door as to who gets to interpret the scriptures, because you're saying it means this, therefore it's Jesus, but we're saying it means this, therefore it's not Jesus. And then you're adding a third element, and that is, well, but if this debate actually is the early Christian community being a Gentile, a non-Jewish community, then it takes on another whole fact, because they're saying, hey, wait a minute, you guys killed Jesus, and now it's Jew Gentiles accusing Jews, and, and it's a lot different. So if this is an inner Jewish debate, the early Christian community being Jewish Christians, against the Jews in the synagogue, who gets to interpret the scriptures, it takes on a different fabric than it would if it were Gentiles arguing against the Jewish community. Is that adequate or? Nicely done. I, I think that's very helpful. Okay. I, mean, I, I would say that if we had to pick one, and we don't, but if we had to pick one charge against Jesus leveled by um, his Jewish opponents, it would probably be the charge of false prophet. Uh, and so he's he's rounded up, and whether it's scribes and Pharisees, scribes and leaders promoting this idea, or the Jewish people as a whole drawing this conclusion, they deem him to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. 
as a false prophet, what do false prophets do? They lead the people astray. He'll start a cult. He'll lead the people perhaps in a violent rebellion. That's going to bring Rome down on our heads. Horrible things are going to happen. So if we give the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day a charitable reading, uh, the benefit of the doubt, and don't just sort of vilify them and caricature them, you could argue, I think, that they're engaged in protection of their people, or at least they're arguing that this false teacher who's critiquing us, who's challenging us, and who's resisting the status quo is dangerous for all of us. He's not of God. He's of someone else. And of course, this is the other side of the debate that Jesus is engaged in. And when Jesus, for example, goes after the Pharisees, he doesn't call them very nice things. You can go to Matthew 23 and read mm -hmm. the litany of charges that he levels against them. And there, uh, the insults are flying both ways. So yeah, I think Jesus, we see him on the ground, engaged in this debate with leaders who are at the very least nervous, maybe jealous of his popularity. That's one level. Then you fast forward a few decades to Matthew and the other evangelists, and they're writing this stuff up. Time has passed. And, you know, there's this growing wedge. They're still debating as Jews, but there's this growing wedge that eventually leads maybe in the second, third, fourth centuries to something we call, you know, the split between Christianity and Judaism. Mm -hmm. Now they're looking at the story from their perspective. And then fast forward again into the second, third centuries. Now you're reading these same texts that were very in-house, intra-Jewish debates, but you're dropping them down into a context that's predominantly a Gentile church. Most of the adherents most of the followers of Jesus by this point are Gentile and the Jews have shrunk to a minority. Now it sounds really different. Yeah. And now it, it starts to sound anti-Jewish, starts to sound pretty bad and yeah. it doesn't take a whole lot of time or imagination. As soon as the church fuses with power, yep. you know, with the turn mm -hmm. of Constantine, then all of a sudden the church has power and it doesn't take a lot of time before these same words can be used to stir up violence against Jews. It, it took a turn before Christ that, though, even right? though, right? With I mean, the Epistle of Barnabas, which is, I think, second century, right, is yep. really strongly anti-Jewish. Yep. And were, do you think they were, people, this yep. is we're kind of getting off topic a little bit, but do you think that they were taking advantage of the fact that is that the Jewish people were destroyed by Roman 70 and everything else and and saying, see, you got, you got what's coming for you because you killed Jesus. This is what the Romans did to you, and that was God's work. Yes. I mean, I think you could even argue, and it goes back and forth, whether some of the New Testament writers themselves are looking at, at 70 and saying, this is God's judgment on the Jews, not just for the rejection of prophets down through the centuries, but for the rejection of Jesus. So it, it's not at all surprising that that trope becomes a really central theme in subsequent um, you know, anti-Jewish demonization have to be exiled they have to be sort of an oppressed people because that proves that we're right can we spot check a couple history things real quick just for folks right. who might not be as familiar with church history so we've referenced 70 ad a few times what is significant about that 
Yeah, boy, there's <laughs> in, in a flyover version of it. <laughs> yeah. So, what event happened then? Jesus says some very harsh things against the temple, the temple establishment. You remember he turns over the tables in the temple as sort of a apparently some kind of a theater, perhaps predicting its destruction. He tells the disciples that not one stone will be left on another. And sure enough, 40 years later, the Romans sweep in and destroy the city to suppress a rebellion and destroy the temple. What does that mean for Israel, for the Jews? Well, the temple was not just a place to hang out, a place to pray, uh, or a place to store your money and your wealth. The temple was fundamentally a place where sacrifice occurred. So after 70, there was no more sacrifice. The entire sacrificial system of Israel ground to a halt. And the Jews had to look around and say, well, what do we do now? Do we go home? Are we done? Or do, how can we think about ourselves as faithful to the God of Israel without a temple? And this, of course, leads to several centuries of reflection, eventually emerging into something what we that we call today rabbinic Judaism, in which things like Torah study and prayer and giving alms become kind of sacrifices, metaphorical sacrifices, metaphorical ways of being faithful in the absence of any opportunity to offer sacrifice. So I think one of the things, to answer your question, Vinny, one of the things to recognize about 70 is that it forced a fundamental re-examination and reimagination for the Jews of that period in terms of how what faithfulness looks like, uh, faithfulness to God and to Torah. Uh, the Christians, meanwhile, they've been worshiping in the temple, but as the book of Hebrews, for example, lays out, they are convinced that the ultimate sacrifice has been offered. And so they're kind of good to go, in a sense. Mm -hmm. The followers of Jesus are not as traumatized or forced into reimagination. Maybe they've already done that. And thinking about Jesus, so that's maybe that was, I'll pause yeah, there. Yeah, no, yeah, that's good. So, well, so let's let's summarize real quick this kind of opening section to frame the conversation about a possible anti-Semitism or whatever. If if we look at the first few hundred years of Jesus followers, you know, Messiah followers, you have a situation where it's predominantly Jewish. It's, it's a Jewish Messiah. It's Jewish followers. Early Christians are Jewish. Um, I think this is helpful to clarify, especially in a, a post-dispensational Western world, like in, in my culture, where there's an idea where there's the Jews and the church, and these are separate groups. No, the early church is Jewish. And so they wouldn't, dis they wouldn't have a distinction of themselves. Uh, and from a societal standpoint, they would also be viewed, the Christians would be viewed as a sect of Judaism. So you're not seeing those, those distinctions. Now, are there people who hate Jewish people? Absolutely. Like we're not ignoring that. We're not denying that, but largely for the first few hundred years, you don't see this large separation of Jew and then this Gentile religion all of a sudden. I don't know if I go a few hundred years. I don't know about Bruce. I yeah, I would go and, probably to the end of the first century. Well, yeah, because I mean, you even see like in, the, in, turn, in yeah. the book of Ro in Romans, you obviously have this issue where there's yeah. like, okay, there, there seems to be more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. How how Jewish does a Gentile need to be in order to follow the Messiah? Like there's issues that are happening yeah. there, right? Yeah. But it's still, it's a yeah. Jewish religion. You're following the, right, exactly. the, the Messiah of Israel. 
Right. So this gets back to our question then, Bruce. Yeah. Was Matthews Jesus nationalistic and tribal? Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. So so let's think about one passage that I like to go to when I, I wonder about this. And that's, I'm, I'm thinking about the story in, in Matthew 15. Could we ponder that together yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit? Would that yeah, be helpful? Right. This is the story of Jesus on a retreat up in Lebanon. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. I don't know if we want to read it or just summarize it. You summarize it is fine. Good. So Jesus is up there in Tyre and Sidon area, and he, he encounters a uh, what Matthew calls a Canaanite woman. Hmm. And that's a bit of a trigger word. We can. And this is Matthew 15, that. by the way, right? So Matthew, Matthew 15, 15, 22, she's a Canaanite woman, yeah. 22. She wants help. She calls him Lord, son of David, she needs help, but he ignores her. He doesn't answer her. He He's really resistant. Uh, and one of the things that he says in that context in verse 24 is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She persists remarkably. She kneels before him. She asks for help. And then you have this famous exchange. Let me just read verse 26. Mm-hmm. He answered, it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Mm. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus replies, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the story. I I love this story because it's it's uncomfortable. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not my polite Canadian Jesus here. Jesus resists three times uh, before finally agreeing to help. He doesn't just jump to her need. And and this is a, a an anguished woman, vulnerable in the society, who's crying out in a man's world. She's a parent desperate to rescue her child. And Jesus doesn't seem too impressed initially. And so the question, yeah, is raised, in what sense does Jesus then come as savior to the world, or is he really sort of an in-house Jewish national figure? When interpreters come to this, they share my discomfort and oftentimes try to fix what's broken in this text, right? They they are uncomfortable to the point where they they want to make Jesus look a little nicer, a little bit more hospitable than he appears. So many often will say, oh, well, Jesus is teasing her. He's testing her. You'll hear that in sermons sometimes. Jesus had a nice look on his face, so we can't see his face, but he was smiling, he was winking at her. Or they'll say, this is another common expression, oh, when he uh, he calls the woman or implies that she's a dog, he's really talking about a puppy, right? Uh, I actually uh, haven't so, heard that one before. Oh, yeah, it's common. That. Okay. Uh, huh. And so it's a house pet. It's a beloved house pet. You know, you go to the Middle East, actually come to Peru, yeah. and an awful lot of the dogs are in the street, mm-hmm. they're roaming, pawing through trash. You know, the house pet is a nice idea, but it probably doesn't fit the context very well. Yeah. So for Jesus to use the language of dog isn't a compliment. It's not affectionate. But then we should add quickly, neither is the language of sheep, right? Mm. I mean, a sheep is clueless, is kind of stupid and wayward. 
so which would you rather be, sort of a wild dog or a clueless sheep? Neither of these metaphors is particularly complimentary. Uh, Martin Luther, Vinny, he thought this story worked nicely as a parable. <laughs> so rather than face the story, you know, full on as a historical account of Jesus being kind of inhospitable, oh, this is a story about faith. So we should be like the woman in persistence and humility and faith and so on. She persisted three times, so should we. I think those are nice attempts. I don't think any of them work. Which brings us to the, I think, the central issue that, Rob, you're raising. Jesus' primary focus, it appears in Matthew's gospel in particular, at least at this point in the story, is on his own people. He's a prophet of Israel. He's convinced that his primary calling is to bring his people back to God, away from injustice and unbelief. He's called the son of David. You talked about that in, at the, in the uh, genealogies. Um, he's the king of Israel, protecting and restoring his nation. He's the shepherd of Israel, burden for his flock. So he wants to bring his wandering people, the Jews, Israel, out of exile. We need to sit with that. I think mm -hmm. we need to let Jesus be a prophet in his own time for his people before we rush to sort of universalize him. Of course, if we read the whole book, we get to the end, the last chapter, and we see Jesus, who's the shepherd of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, tell his disciples to go into all the world and take this very Jewish message to all the nations so we know that there's inclusion coming, but this woman's story, I think, becomes like a preview of coming attractions or a, an exception to the rule uh, and an exception that becomes the rule later on. Uh, we saw the same thing, I think, in Matthew 2 with the wise men, the magi, right? They come from the east, they come from outside, and while Herod is rejecting the king, Jesus, these outsiders are getting it, and they're they're honoring Jesus. The, the outsiders are, are brought in. There's a Roman centurion in, in chapter 8 whose faith is greater than anything Jesus has, has seen in Israel. There's another centurion who witnesses Jesus' crucifixion and calls him the Son of God. So, so we have in Matthew these little clues that the gospel is going to kind of bust out of its sort of tribal constraints. But in the middle of the story, Jesus does look like a national savior, right? He is Israel. He straps Israel to his back. He wants to get right what Israel got wrong in their time in the wilderness. And, and that makes him, in a sense, a national figure who then, it seems, redefines what it means to be part of that nation. That hey, Bruce, I'm, I'm, I'm curious just to Obviously, we're hanging out in Matthew right now, but is this yeah. similar to what John records in John chapter 10, where he where he's saying Jesus is saying, you know, I am the good shepherd. Uh, I know my flock. I have other sheep out there. Could we assume that the same thing is happening where the other sheep are the Gentiles and he's specifically uh, talking to Jewish people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think John's gospel, like Matthew, is operating on these two levels. Uh, one, the level of Jesus in his Jewish context. And then I think at other times, the writer, whether it's Matthew or John, is looking ahead, seeing what has evolved 
in the time since Jesus. And in a way, he's he gets Jesus to to do some of that work for him of of broadening out and including these other sheep or these Gentiles, these nations in the flock, in the people of Israel. So I think you're right. I think that language, of course, the language of shepherd for both John and Matthew is indebted to Israel scripture. We have the sure. Psalms, Ezekiel, for example, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Ezekiel that, mm-hmm. that, that celebrate God as the shepherd of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus comes along and audaciously kind of claims that role for himself as mm-hmm. the one who is the good shepherd. Unlike those bad shepherds, those leaders who are missing what God is up to, they're leading the people astray. Let me be the good shepherd who gets us back on track. Does that work? Yeah. And I don't want to do too much harmonization. It's just helpful to give our listeners a way to apply this thought to other gospels and not just totally spiritualize and sermonize the way they might've heard a John 10 actually, (laughs) but actually understand, oh, this is part of a, an old Testament connection that is being made here. uh, Yeah. I I mean, I think there's, let me just get me myself in trouble a little bit. I want to, I want to suggest that this question we're asking at the, at the core of it is, you know, what's the relationship between the followers of Jesus in this new movement and the heritage of Israel or the people of Israel and Israel scripture? This question we're asking is the question that gets all of these writers out of bed in the morning, whether it's Paul or Matthew or John or Luke. And in, in a way, I think they're all struggling with it from different perspectives. And maybe even if we stuck them in a room or in a phone booth and said, don't come out until you all agree, they might be in there for a while. You know, They're struggling and looking at this question from these different perspectives. And I'm not sure they all would have necessarily seen eye to eye at every moment working through this question. And so I think you see some evidence for more kind of continuity between the followers of Jesus and the children of Israel and other places, it might seem that there's more discontinuity. Uh, it's a, it's a, an urgent uh, central question. It's what fires them up and what they have to kind of sort out as they're, you know, heading up this radical new movement based on a Jewish Messiah, but including all these Gentiles. So let's ask the next question that's related to that then, which is a modern question too, but we'll talk about it in an ancient context first. And that is what about the land? So if the essence of the Old Testament story is that land and family, this is what it means to be eternal life. And and this is the covenantal promise of land and family. If the family issue was a significant question and a big debate, what about the land issue? What do we do with that? The territory itself. Great, great question. Uh, and, and you're right that that's, I mean, I think a people with a covenant in the land, those are the sort of the three yeah. key issues in scripture that we have to struggle with. And so, yeah, in, let's, let's focus on Matthew, for example. There are uh, scholars, some of whom are good friends of ours, who want to argue that Matthew does continue to have a land theology, a, a territorialism, in its hope for ethnic national Israel. Meaning uh, today, meaning the people today meaning, still meaning, have these covenants. Meaning going promises. forward, still today, right. uh, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost. My first comment is there's not a lot of 
evidence for that. You have to kind of hunt around. You go to text, like, for example, if you want to make the argument, and I think we should try it on to see how it works. One of the Beatitudes that you have considered uh, already in your in your podcast, the meek will inherit the mm -hmm. earth. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Matthew 5, 5. So here's Jesus promising good fortune, promising inheritance for the gentle or the meek. And he says they'll inherit the earth. They'll inherit, you could say, territory. And of course, the word earth and the word land, mm -hmm. thinking in the Greek right. uh, lexicon, are the same word. Right. Or at least the word used here for earth and the word used in other places for land are the same. Back in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus takes Mary and Jesus as a, an infant to the land of Israel. It's the same word. So, and then you add to that, that Jesus is riffing here on Psalm 37. When he says the meek will inherit the land, that's a direct echo, if not quote, from Psalm 37, which is really all about a pledge that the faithful will live safely and well in the land of promise. They'll enjoy security, they'll inherit the land. So it's Psalm 37, verse 11, that Jesus seems to be echoing. Uh, they'll delight in prosperity. You know, they're going to have kids. There's going to be rain. There's going to be harvest. There's going to be secure borders. All of this is, is sort of promised to those who are faithful in Psalm 37 and, of course, elsewhere in Scripture. So Jesus is riffing on that. And the question is, is he just, I mean, one question is, is he just kind of restating it? Or is he infusing it with some kind of new sentiment or idea for uh for scott mcknight uh, for joel willits they think jesus in matthew 5 is talking about uh the jews jews loyal to jesus will have a future inheritance in the land so they want to see this as evidence of a landed or a turfed theology in matthew's gospel can you hang an entire land theology on on a verse like that I'm not sure. I mean, it's possible, of course, that Jesus could be taking Psalm 37 and kind of expanding it, uh, drawing out, you know, given that the Gentiles will be included, it's not that the, all the Gentiles are going to be, you know, welcomed into the land as we think of it as Israel, but rather the whole earth will be ours those who are oppressive, whether they be the Jewish elites or whether they be the Roman establishment, are going to suffer loss, and the gentle, the meek, the followers of Jesus will be welcomed and inherit God's restored earth. That's another possible way to read that, right? My way of reading it is sort of a third option. So option one is, yes, Jesus is promising territory in the Holy Land to the followers of Jesus. Another way is to say, no, no, he's promising the whole earth to the followers of Jesus. My read is that it's more poetic. Jesus is stating here what he does in all kinds of places, and that is pledging a reversal. Elsewhere, he says, the humble will be exalted. So here he's saying, not the dominant and the oppressors who will inherit 
the land, the earth, whatever, but it's you guys, you, you meek, gentle ones who are following this very unlikely, improbable Messiah. You're the ones who are going to benefit. So I wouldn't want to build too much land theology out of a verse like that. There's a couple of other texts we can look at, but they're not a not a whole lot. Do you want to look at another one together? It, sure, might as well. Yeah, yeah. So what I think what you're saying then is is that you can't take this verse and say, therefore, this is our theology of the land. He's simply saying, no, I'm flipping things upside down, and the ones who inherit are the meek, and not the powerful. And that, the inheritance that, issue is not the point of the passage. Mm-hmm. The point of the passage is who's inheriting. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that fits well with the Beatitudes as a whole. Right? Yes. It's yes. those who mourn who will be comforted. Right. So it's it's this upside down, this inversion that Jesus continually emphasizes. And that's coming through again yeah. in, in this. Uh, it's almost like he, say, he would say the meek will win the lottery. Uh, is that a metaphor? Is that literal? No, it's just a poem. It's it's theopoetic, talking about the restoration and the elevation of those who until now have been on the margins in this upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Uh, another verse that you could look at, if you want to build a land theology, Matthew, would be in chapter 8. This is where Jesus has this encounter with the centurion, and he's amazed at the centurion's faith. And he says, no one in Israel has such faith. I've not seen anybody who's got this kind of faith. I'm in Matthew 8. And then verse 11, he says, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown out. Now, again, you see reversal, right? Outsiders come in, insiders tossed out. But they come from east and west to have a banquet with the patriarchs. And so the question is, from east to west, where, right? And the obvious, the easiest answer would be, well, Jerusalem, of course. They they come from beyond Jerusalem. They come from outside the land. And here we are with this messianic banquet in the capital of a landed kingdom. Again, it's not a lot to go on, but it's not, it wouldn't be totally stupid for somebody to say, this seems to presuppose the restoration of territorial kingdom, uh, a territorial kingdom in uh, in the promised land where the patriarchs will be and where we're going to have this, this wonderful banquet. So one option, of course, is a literal feast in a literal kingdom in Jerusalem, uh, maybe in the palace of the king. On the other hand, here's my alternative reading. All over the New Testament, all the way through to Revelation 19, you have this language of banquet, of wedding. You see it in John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana. Um, you have it in Jesus' parables, the wedding feast. It's a, it's a banquet of surplus, of bounty. Uh, as, as you all know, if you tra- travel some of the poorer parts of the world, you can't get you can't find a more powerful metaphor of restoration and and bounty than a, than a banquet. Food uh, becomes a powerful image in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it's an image of salvation. I mean, a royal feast with a surplus where everyone has more. I mean, can you imagine a meal where there's more 
there that we can even eat? You know, you and I can imagine that. Right. A lot of people around the world can't. Yes. Uh, and so here's Jesus using banquet language as a metaphor, inviting his followers into an age of peace, of prosperity, of communion around the table, of reunion with the patriarchs, of abundance, the end of deprivation, uh, the, the scandal of inclusivity. All of that seems to be more central to this language Jesus throws out here than some question about the geographical location of a literal banquet. Uh, Which you know, just what shows was the you, color by the way, of the tablecloth? Sorry? I was going to say, it just shows you the influence of prosperity and power that we don't think about those questions because the issue of food is just like a non, it's a non-issue for us. We have plenty of, so that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is where? Whereas for a people whose daily subsistence is a question, the issue of an abundance of food, that's the point at hand. I think so. Now, our opponents would say, yeah, but it, it can be both, right? I mean, there can be some kind of right. bountiful, glorious messianic feast, and it can be grounded and located. It doesn't have to be just purely poetic. And I want to say, okay, maybe. Maybe that's Matthew's vision. Uh, I don't think it's John's vision. I don't think that's what you see in Revelation. So mm -hmm. again, I'm back to my troubling statement that maybe the New Testament writers saw this differently and had different lenses for viewing this thing we call the restoration or the kingdom. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say, first off, I appreciate how you're modeling charity as you're uh, approaching the various views. It seems like, you know, we know where you're coming from on this. You, you obviously have a conviction and a perspective, but you're like, hey, let's try this on. Let's see what it's, it's, what it's like. And, and you're not straw manning it. So I I just want to say, I think that's a, a great way to model to just, you know, the church in general, how we ought to engage conversations like this on both sides, you know, try the other yeah. side on and, and try to do that. But because I would have said, I, I like, mean, you, yeah, yeah, Rob wouldn't have gone there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how dumb can you be? But they say, <laughs> but well, well, actually, you know, Rob and I have been in these conversations with, with some of our dear friends uh, who hold, you know, some of these alternative sure. views. And I'm really tired of the straw man approach, mm -hmm. the caricatures. I, I want to give as charitable a reading as possible. And we, we don't have time to, to build the strongest possible case, yeah. but that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And saying, here's a way to think about this from another angle. Maybe we don't find it persuasive, but these folks aren't idiots. They're not evil. They're coming to these texts just as we are fallible uh, limited in their understanding, and we're doing our best. And, and keep in mind, we're all doing this in the wake of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. We're all doing this in the wake of centuries and centuries of Christian, not just anti-Judaism, but anti-Semitism. Right. And we're trying to read the New Testament responsibly post-Auschwitz, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we should be. Mm -hmm. And and so any efforts to attempt that, we should applaud. And yet we still have to kind of uh, weigh the arguments and see which ones uh, find we find most persuasive. Well, yeah, one, one more question, because I, I think Rob wanted to push it into a direction as well. But yeah. it just even as we look at like the totality of Matthew's gospel, and especially in how he ends his gospel, where you have Jesus on the mountain giving his great commission and, you know, when he declares, okay, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go into all nations and teach them to obey what I have, you know, taught you. 
Well, if you're going into all the nations now, how could you see, I don't know, I don't know if you would want to call it an, an ethnocentric view of land here, but this seems to be for all the nations. Now, why, what do you, what are they commanded to do? Go into all the nations and teach, guess what Israel gets now? It's like, no, go into all the nations to make disciples. And it's something that we get to inherit now. That's aside from a nationalistic view. This is something different that's happening. Shouldn't we read even the beginning part of the story in light of the end of the story? I think we have to, and I think this is really the kind of Achilles heel for some of my Christian Zionist friends. Here's the question we might ask. When those Gentiles embrace the message of the apostles, when they recognize that Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews over there in the Middle East, but for the rest of us as well, and they're welcomed into this new community, what's their status? Mm-hmm. Um, are they full? co-equal heirs you know paul seems to think so mm-hmm. are they sort of second tier are they like proselytes proselytes or righteous gentiles that are kind of welcomed in but still kind of on the margins and and i don't think the story makes sense with Gentiles as somehow second tier or second class. That, that se- it seems to me it's either all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And if Gentiles are welcomed in, in full co-equal status with, with Jews in this community of Jesus, which is somehow the restored Israel, that, that seems to undermine a narrow notion of Jewish nationalism Mm -hmm. and maybe political territorialism. Our our Christian Zionist friends, I'm talking about the thoughtful ones who are doing serious work on this. They seem to think you can have it both ways, that there can be a ethnic continuation of the, the Jewish people, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the one hand, and yet a, a welcomed inclusion of Gentiles as full beneficiaries of salvation on the other. And I think Rob's question about the land is kind of the issue that, that we have to struggle with. Mm-hmm. If you're hearing dogs barking, those are my hiking buddies. I apologize for that. <laughs> That's all right. So, so let's, let's wrap this up a little bit. Yeah. With one more question, then I want to tie this to kind of the work that you're doing with Nimi and what's happening with that also. So back to our original question, is Matthew's gospel anti-Semitic then? We've talked about how certain texts in the gospel of Matthew are at very least polemical. And we see this, especially if you want to spend some time in Matthew 23, uh, with Jesus' polemical polemic against the the, uh, the Pharisees, and we've talked about how these very same texts that are we've argued intra-Jewish or examples of sibling rivalry can be then extracted and dropped into a later context that looks a whole lot like a new religion has come along. Call it Christianity that seems to be over and against Judaism as it is today. And when you hear those very same terms and and phrases used 
or read by Christians, read out of a Christian book that has this long heritage of, well, it has, it has been long used against Jews to marginalize and vilify Jews. It starts to sound, or at least it starts to function, or at least it starts to fund and support something we call anti-Semitism. The most commonly cited text for this in Matthew's gospel is the one in Matthew 27. So not quite at the end, mm -hmm. but here's where Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate is saying, what do I, should I do with this Jesus who's called the Messiah? And the people, not just the leaders, but the people say as a whole, quote, his blood be on us and on our children, unquote. That's Matthew 27, 25. We need to sit along with this text. We need to ponder it not only as a possible window on the historical context of Jesus, you know, appearing before Pilate with nervous Jewish leaders and a, a malleable crowd saying things that they had no business saying. We also need to sit with this in the context of Matthew and his more contested environment. And then we need to sit with it in the centuries that followed all the way up to the present day. And again, endeavor to think this text through post-Auschwitz, mm. post-Holocaust, mm -hmm. in a context where this verse was used to, to demonize and eventually to, to, uh, to murder millions of Jews. Is Matthew anti-Semitic? I don't think that makes sense. Right. I don't think we can hold Matthew himself responsible. Do I wish this verse wasn't in the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah, <laughs> to be honest. But I don't think it makes sense to pin the label anti-Semitism on Matthew. I think that's something we have to own as subsequent readers who have used texts like this and texts in John's gospel and texts elsewhere and uh, exploited them for our own purposes, uh, apologetic purposes to elevate what we see as the truth over against a false message, elevate Jesus over against those who rejected him. I'd love to hear your reactions if either of you want to push back on that. Yeah, go ahead, Vinny. If you have, you have a thought on this. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, I'm just more taking it in because I, I don't know if I have considered a lot of this topic. Okay. So for me, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm taking it in from that voice. So I actually wrote a chapter. I don't know if you knew this or not, Bruce. The book should be coming out any day now. Uh, the title of the book is John Among His Critics, I believe it is. And my chapter was on Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, where in both those letters to the church of Smyrna and the church in, in, in Philadelphia, it says, those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, was John anti-Semitic? And part of my art of argument, I think that's what you're getting at is, he's no more anti-Semitic than Isaiah was. Because Isaiah is Jewish and, and Jeremiah, and they're railing against their own people. If we understand this as an inner Jewish debate, and as if the Christian community was still viewing themselves as the true Jewish people, 
and they're predominantly Jewish, although Gentiles are coming in now, it's still a Jewish religion, then this is a debate amongst Jews in-house as to who's got the right interpretation. Obviously, the problem I think that you're pointing out really well, though, is, yeah, but even when we win, then this gets used as, as weapons, and that's the danger, and that's the problem. And we have to always be cognizant of that. Even when we get to the issue of land and family today, we start talking about the Israel-Palestine issue today, you just have to be cognizant of the fact that as soon as you bring up the Palestinian suffering, immediately someone's going to take that and become anti-Semitic, and we got to stop that before it even happens. Yeah, and, and so I think I think some people make the mistake of stopping in the New Testament and saying, "Oh, silly, anti-Semitism is an anachronism. Right. You can't use. You, there's no racially motivated anti-Semitism in the New Testament. That comes along much later. That's fine and good, but you can't stop it. Right. And and these very same texts, once they get used in a context of power." the kind of power the church came to possess not too many years later, they became deadly. The cross became a sword. That We have to go there. We yeah. can't stop by just uh, letting Matthew off the hook or letting uh, you know the, uh, John or Revelation off the hook. Um, we have to recognize these texts as what Phyllis Tribble calls texts of terror, right? Or, or at least terrifying texts for some understandably. And it's because we, if I could speak really broadly, we are complicit yeah. in a Christian theology that has um, has waged the, or wielded these weapons you know, to great evil. For a so, long, yeah, I, long time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the corporate understanding of the church means that we are guilty too. I like what you said there. Yeah, it's we. I'm not, I'm not anti-Semitic. It doesn't matter. We have been, and we have done great, the crusades and on and on and on and on. So Bruce, if you don't mind, can we wrap this up by telling us a little bit about the network of evangelicals for the Middle East, or you're the senior research fellow for them? What is that? And what are you doing with them? And kind of fill us in there. Sure. So there's, there's lots of dialogue going on across the church, the denominations, uh, left and right, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, mainline, lots of dialogue going on these days about how to think about Israel and Palestine as Christians. Uh, one of the areas we think in this network that we think needs to be addressed more carefully is the evangelical orbit. And I think so often, um, as I said earlier, the dialogue between Christian Zionist evangelicals, of whom there are millions in the U.S. and around the world, and uh, non-Zionist Christian evangelicals uh, is often very binary, uh, polarized, just like every other conversation these days, it seems. And and it's, it's defensive for the most part. It involves uh, staking out our position and often preaching to the choir. And then there's this whole crowd in the middle, you know, as a Westmont College professor, I saw generations of students who maybe grew up in a Christian Zionist ethos, but it was pretty thin. Uh, maybe they breathed that air or drank that water, but don't ask them to defend it. Um, so they're sort of reflexive pro-Israel Christians, but don't expect them to really articulate thoughtfully why. 
Uh, and so for whether, whether it's the, the non-Zionists, even anti-Zionist Christians within evangelicalism, the hard pro-Zionist Christians, or this large crowd in the middle, we're trying to cultivate a conversation that's thoughtful, that's respectful, that's informed. And so our goals are to educate, to offer resources that might come in the form of written material or webinars or what have you, to elevate voices that um, might not be otherwise heard, particularly here I'm thinking of Middle Eastern voices, voices of uh, Christians in the Middle East that are often ignored. Sadly, many evangelicals in the West don't really have a category for Palestinian Christian. Palestinian to them is predominantly Muslim, and that's a bad word. So Palestinians get sort of lumped in with their, their anti-Islamic orientation. Uh, but Christian Jews, Christian Palestinians need to be heard, and we want to elevate their voices. And then we want to make an argument and equip people to make the argument that we can be advocates for something better than what we've seen in the past, something that includes advocacy for uh, security and prosperity for Jews and Palestinians in the same piece of real estate. Mm -hmm. Neither group is going away anytime soon, by the way. Uh, they're going to be living side by side. And uh, we've contributed to some of the mess over there. And maybe we can contribute thoughtfully with humility, with an Arenic spirit to some kind of better future that includes justice and peace. So that's what we're engaged in. And we would love to... Um, yeah, to elevate that message to with across the evangelical community, uh, rather than engage in more combat. There's a, there's been enough of that. So let's put down our swords and let's talk. Ironic spirit. I love that. That's what a great mm -hmm. line. Great. Yeah. Hey, I think if I can just comment real quickly here, Vinny, before we wrap up, that this conversation has shown us what happens when we take a text and use it in a certain way. And the danger of extrapolating that out, millions and millions of lives have been at stake as a result of that. And so thank you for helping us have some hard conversations as well as illuminating the gospel of Matthew for us. And we appreciate your time, Bruce. I appreciate it. It's been, as I expected, it's been fun to be with you both. And uh, you're both doing good work. So keep it up. Thanks, thanks hey, is there, is, I'll yeah. give Vinny a raise then. You're, you're going to double my pay this year? <laughs> um, hey Bruce, is there a way? Uh, do you blog or uh, put anything out on social media like that? There's a way of people to connect with you. So a lot of the stuff we're doing, we're we're connecting to the NEME uh, social media. So that includes a website, nemi.org, Facebook page, Twitter feed. Uh, I think for now, I mean, I've got my own stuff out there as well, but I think those are some of the best ways to uh, to track what we're doing. Hey, well, thanks, Bruce, for hanging out. Hopefully, we'll have you again sometime. And uh, if not, what's the weather like in Peru this time of year? Are you guys similar to us? or We're in the rainy season. Okay. So right now, the sun has come out. But um, oftentimes, we get rain for part of the day. Um, but then it clears up. And uh, the, the temperatures are always moderate. 
perfect for hiking. Come on down and I'll take you on some amazing treks. Nice. Maybe up to the 17,000 foot level. (laughs) Exactly. Not really. All right, bud. Hey, I hope you have a great weekend. We're going to, we have a few more episodes in the Matthew series, right, Rob? One more, one more. more. Yeah. So So we only have like 16 chapters left, but we'll take it down. Seriously. We'll we'll blast through that. Yeah. All right, everyone. I hope you guys all have a great week and Bruce, we'll see you later. Rob, I'll see you later. Goodbye to all our friends. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.